Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Today is the final installment of our four-part podcast series on queer activisms, in which historians, performers, educators, and activists take a deep dive into existence and resistance in past and present queer life. Our topic today is queer education in all its dimensions, from the experience of being an out teacher to the vexed history of attempts to integrate queer lives into school curricula. To introduce the discussion and our guests, I'll hand over to our presenter, History Workshop's Ellie Robson. Hello, I'm Ellie Robson, and in this final episode of our Queer Activism series, we're going to be discussing queer education. Now, this can mean anything from creating safe spaces for queer youth to express and explore their identities, through to LGBT positive sex education, or integrating LGBT lives and themes into mainstream curricula. And it also involves challenging explicit and implicit homophobia in schools and creating inclusive spaces for LGBT children and children in LGBT families. Now, unfortunately, the history of queer education in the UK has often been one of deliberate silence, um, a silence that was officially legislated between 1988 and 2003 by Section 28. Section 28 was a law that made it illegal for local authorities and schools to promote homosexuality or to teach about the acceptability of homosexuality as a pretended family relationship. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about Section 28, um, thinking about its histories of resistance, its painful legacies and its relevance today. And I'm very lucky to be joined today by Nazmiya Jamal and Saida Ali, Nazmiya Jamal has been teaching English in sixth form settings since 2004, with a brief hiatus as education manager at the Poetry Society from 2016 to 2018. Alongside teaching, Nazmiya was a programmer for several years at London Lesbian and Gay Film Festival, now BFI Flair, and she lives and works in Cardiff. Seda Ali recently completed her MA in Queer History, where she used oral history interviews with former teachers to research teacher resistance to Section 28. She's developing this research to further understand how Section 28 impacted schools in different areas of the UK. Seda has taught history in London and Beijing, promoting diversity within the history curriculum and championing equality and diversity more broadly in school and she is currently working as Head of History at a South London school. So um, Nazmia, I was hoping you could kick us off um, just by talking a bit about what the stakes are here. So why is it so important to offer queer positive curricula and spaces to young people? I think, well, maybe it's the space that's important in a school environment, just by virtue of being an out teacher, there's been, I think, for me and my students, there's been a lot to, that that's been gained 
one of my happiest memories of teaching at my first school was that this child that I did not teach, who I'd actually never noticed before because I didn't teach her, who was quite obviously gay. You know, she had this, like she had a lot of rainbow jewellery and she kind of sidled up to me like you do in a cartoon one day when I was on break duty and she sort of whispered at me out of the side of her mouth, um, are you in charge of gay things here? And I was like, <laughs> no, I'm the English teacher. But it just felt, I think, that the fact that she was able to do that and then a couple of days later, she'd obviously been laying the ground, but a couple of days later she came to see me before lesson started and she just said, I just wanted to tell you I came out to my parents this, this morning. And I was like, oh my God, are you okay? She was like, yeah, it was fine. You know, so actually for this child, it probably wasn't that difficult at home, but what she wanted was a space to be validated in the school and she knew that she could get that from me. And that's partly because of the fact that previously I had taught queer texts. I just think the stakes are so high, like lives are really difficult for all of our kids. I know that as a queer person who went to school where there was no visibility. Yeah, and Seda, do you have anything to add to that as well from your, both from your research and your experience as a, as a teacher in schools? Well, I'm, I'm going to go the other way, actually, um, and step away from the personal. And actually, coming from a history and a curriculum background, I would say that the it's about the importance of teaching those diverse histories, because in order for those students who are diverse and in front of us to really feel that they've got a stake in the curriculum, and I think that's, that's a very difficult thing to feel because there are structural inequalities which exist which we cannot deny and if you think of history being the study of people who've lived in the past they are diverse they were diverse and to feel a part of that history students have actually got I, I think it's their right to feel that they are, they have a stake in that, the history of their country, how they fit in with that, looking at the diversity of gender, race, sexuality, class, and to feel that this is a whole thing, not that history belongs to other people, that history is somebody else's. And I think when students see those hierarchies in front of them which may not and quite often don't represent who they feel that they are or don't represent things about them so for example I've taught very multicultural environments within London and in Beijing actually at an international school and seeing that the senior leaders within those schools often are monolithically white and presumed heterosexual, um, often more than presumed heterosexual because we have a culture within schools of celebrating when somebody heterosexual has a wedding and you everybody gets together and has a big celebration of that and these very heterosexist cultures in a way. So for students to actually be able to see within history, within their curriculum, positive images, that makes a huge impact on them, feeling that they're not othered, they are a part of this. And indeed, I, I feel that it does a disservice to history 
if we have this portrayal, which is exclusive, because actually what we're doing there is that we're cutting something out. Certainly the curriculum is the place where it needs to be embedded. And more than that, it needs to be within the culture of the school as well, because like you and I, we both teach humanities subjects where if, if you've got the will, it's not that hard to put visibility and representation and all the rest of it into into our curriculums like I teach English and I don't think I've ever taught a course where there hasn't been a queer writer sort of whether that's the trench poets or Shakespeare or Alice Walker like Carol Ann Duffy they're all there but I think it does those texts a disservice to treat them in the way that a lot of teachers do which is that you don't bring the queer context of them into the room and you don't provide the proper history of the text if you like you know that kind of that this is this text is written by someone who lived a lifestyle or identified in a particular way that we don't talk about we should be talking about that so it's easy for there to be a kind of continued erasure um, within the curriculum even of the kind of lgbt lives and experiences that are present I think you've both kind of really highlighted what a queer positive education could be and what it could also do for students. And I think this also throws into stark relief why Section 28 was such a damaging and discriminatory policy for LGBT communities and young people. And so I wanted us to talk now a bit about what Section 28 was and how it came about. And kind of just before we drill down into it, I wanted to read a statement to the House of Lords by Lord Halsbury from 1986. And Lord Halsbury introduced the first version of what became Section 28. So he said, I did not think that lesbians were a problem. They do not molest little girls. They do not indulge in disgusting and unnatural practices like buggery. They are not wildly promiscuous and do not spread venereal disease. It is part of the softening up propaganda that lesbians and gays are nearly always referred to in that order. The relatively harmless lesbian leads on the vicious gay. That was what I thought, but I have been warned that the loony left is hardening up the lesbian camp and that they are becoming increasingly aggressive. So it was um, the next year in in, uh, 1987 that negative attitudes towards homosexuality peaked. 75% of the population were recorded as saying that homosexuality was always or mostly wrong. Just 11% believed that it was never wrong. Seder, I was wondering if you wanted to kind of bring us into to what was going on at this moment in, in the late 80s that allowed this kind of discourse to emerge. Against the context, against the background of AIDS as well, I I think it would be a huge injustice to exclude that and just focus entirely on education, because I think in this time of huge moral panic, AIDS was being used as this new gay plague. It really brought to the fore a lot of negative imagery which had been used against gay people and particularly against gay men in the media over an extended period of time. So the concept of gay men as predators, as sexual deviants, as corruptors of the youth. And then we link directly into what is happening in education that there is all this talk of local education authorities using the public purse 
in order to promote deviant homosexual agendas. So at this time, there were local education authorities in the, in the UK. And up until 1986, when the government passed an Education Act, which said that curricula would be the responsibility of school governors, local education authorities had much more say in what was happening in schools. It also happens to be a time when there are a lot of Labour local education authorities which were trying to push through equal opportunities policies. So there was a a very large education authority, the Inner London Education Authority, known as ILIA, and they used funds to promote different aspects of equal opportunities within education. And one of the things that they came up with in the borough of Haringey is they came up with this idea of positive images. So they had established in Haringey the Ilia Relationships and Sexuality Project. I mean, we talk about research-informed educational practice now, but that was really something that the Inner London Educational Authority was pioneering. And the Relationships and Sexuality Project had come up with this idea of positive images of homosexuality to be used in education. It it was pink, um, a pink book, which was a list of resources. On this list is certain books which would be found in school libraries, but there was also a teacher's resource centre. And that resource centre was specifically for educational staff, wasn't accessible by members of the public. And there is a book there called, uh, it's a children's book called Jenny Lives with Eric and Martin. And this book then becomes the subject of huge controversy in the press. You have descriptions by members of the government of this as being pornographic. There's a girl, she's as a seven year old girl, she's in bed with two naked men. This is promoting gay sex and it's outrageous. And this is being fed to our children. And this was all over the newspapers in 1987 as this huge scandal. And it was used as an example of how local authorities were misusing public funds in order to promote this homosexual agenda. And um, this is used as part of this culture of fear whipped up against gay people and particularly in education in order to be able to pass section 28, which was actually section 28 as a law was not an education act. It was section 28 of the local government act, which should give an indication as to who the target of that was and how the particular government at that time was feeling about what they felt were these loony left labor councils and whose activities need to be curtailed. And it it just read, so it's section 2A, a local authority shall not intentionally promote homosexuality or publish material with the intention of promoting homosexuality, nor promote the teaching in any maintained school of the acceptability of homosexuality as a pretended family relationship. So this is the the very emotive clause in there 
And at the very end of it, that idea, a pretended family relationship, that was added in at the very last minute. So it wasn't originally in the wording of that, but you can obviously understand how suddenly there is this climate of, okay, we're not equal and it's enshrined in law and just creates this horrific feeling for gay people working within the public sector and beyond. I wanted to go back to to another politician, to Thatcher, who was talking about this in, in very similar, very strong wording. And I've, you know, in that famous speech that she makes about children learning anti-racist maths and so on, she also talks about, and I think this is in 1986 as well, she talks about hard left education authorities and extremist teachers who are intent on destroying traditional moral values and teaching children that they have an unalienable right to be gay and that's Thatcher you know so obviously this is what's going to be taken up by her followers and by all these people who have voted for the Tories I think there's there's such a pantomime quality I mean obviously it's terrible and it really destroyed a lot of lives and it's made all of our lives a lot harder but there is something about the kind of over-the-top pantomime element of this language that I think probably would have delighted me at the time if I had been, if I'd been old enough to understand what was going on, because I think I was, I was seven in 1986. But certainly the kind of queer life that I've grown up to live is one that celebrates being part of a hard left education authority when I was able to be part of that. And to feel like what, you know, sort of whatever an extremist teacher could be without being you know whatever an extremist teacher means now in our in our new world but certainly this idea of kind of breaking down traditional moral values is incredibly enticing and I think that that's partly what then sparked the very exciting kind of dyke-led in lots of cases protests around section 28 but um, I also wanted to talk a little bit about how because it isn't a law that applied specifically to schools, it really, um, one of the things that gets left out, I think, is how Section 28 impacted on, say, local libraries and the acquisition of books in libraries. And so children's and families' access to, to resources, not just through school, but through other avenues as well. You know, sort of, the, certainly ILIA funded huge amounts of stuff, and so did the GLC. And um, people like Sunil Gupta, the photographer Sunil Gupta, was, has talked to me about, say, the photography projects that they were working on with young people at the time. So kind of taking photos of, um, of their lives. You know, there were young people involved in that, like Ritu, who grew up to be DJ Ritu, all these kind of queer kids who were around at the time. That was supposed to be a photography project that went on tour around libraries and youth centres and that funding for that got pulled the law seems fairly difficult to apply and it is but the kind of the wording and that idea of um, pretended families is is just so pernicious that it 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 cut things all over the place didn't it I think that's absolutely right and you're moving us now into thinking about the impact that section 28 had so as, as you've kind of flagged it was really quite difficult to implement in practice there were no successful prosecutions under the law. But I also think it's really interesting that all three of us are kind of, were different ages when Section 28 came in and will have had different experiences of, of its impact as a result. So 
I hadn't heard about Section 28 until I was in my mid-20s and everything suddenly clicked into place about the complete silence I'd grown up with around LGBT lives. I couldn't imagine an LGBT life for myself and Section 28 was passed just days before my birth in 1988. I grew up in Haringey where you have the kind of controversy over Jenny lives with Erica Martin. So, you know, I take it all very personally. But more seriously, you've pointed to that kind of terrible phrase, homosexuality as a pretended family relationship. And I really grew up thinking that it wasn't possible to be gay and have a family, either be accepted by your birth family or to, or to make a family going forwards. So, I mean, that's just anecdotal evidence about the kind of effect that it had on people's lives through that kind of very violent silence um, and I wondered if Seda you wanted to kind of reflect a little bit on on the impact. I, I think it, it's it's very difficult to specifically pinpoint the impact or the legacies of section 28 when you you have to understand that we didn't have the Equalities Act at that time we had legislation on racial equality, we had legislation on sexual equality, but we, we were not a society that was in a place where it said that discrimination against people because of their homosexuality is a questionable practice. There was no legal censure for such behaviour. Interestingly enough, Ellie, you mentioned uh, Lord Halsbury earlier, and I'd just like to, I think this is an apt point to draw in something else that he said in that same debate, which is also recorded on Hansard. He says, we have for several decades past been emancipating minorities who claimed they were disadvantaged. Are they grateful? Not a bit. We emancipated races and got inverted racism. We emancipated homosexuals and they condemn heterosexism as chauvinist sexism, male oppression and so on. They will push us off the pavement if we give them a chance. So you, you need to understand the, the, the broader context of there is actually, there is rabid heterosexism, as it was called. I mean, we say homophobia now. You know, it's a period of rabid racism as well. We have the two local authorities, which are particularly vilified, Lambeth and Haringey, both who have black people in charge of those local authorities. You've got Bernie Grant, you've got Linda Bellos. So this isn't some amazingly progressive time Ellie, that you know that you were growing up in anyway where e even the things the equalities which are enshrined in law there's still this great sense of resentment around those let alone the wilds of homosexuality but to answer your question about the impact of section 28 I think what it did it did create a climate of confusion as to what was promotion of homosexuality and therefore what was acceptable. There was this fear, this kind of panopticism of the government is watching teachers and everything that they're doing and everything that they're saying and everything that's going on in schools. However, let's not forget that this is also the period when Ofsted was created. Let's also not 
forget that this is the time when the national curriculum was created. So the government is moving in on the autonomy of what is happening within schools anyway, within this period. You've had a huge period of teacher strikes and in revenge, the, the government has taken away the teachers' collective bargaining rights. So I, I think teachers are very much on the defensive as to how, how much autonomy they've got within their schools. So if I'm an out teacher, will I be punished for this? Will there, what is going to be the comeback? If anything, it's a backlash to the perceived gain in gay rights, which might have been taking place with all these local authority, equal opportunities campaigns. And then there's, it's the pushback on that. But then we have this period where schools aren't really sure as to what they can do and students suffer and teachers suffer. Yeah, so kind of difficulties in using it as a legal weapon, as a kind of social and cultural bar and context, entrenching some of the already profound homophobia in society. Nazmia, did you want to come in on, on this? Yeah, I think, I mean, so for, for me, I'm really glad that you brought up the national curriculum because I really intensely remember that coming in. It changed the way that we were educated in school, but also my mum was a primary teacher. So I, like, I remember the big folders of the national curriculum arriving in our house, but nothing about Section 28 at all. And I've asked her today, does she remember it coming in? Was she instructed to, to think about her teaching in any way? And she just, there was nothing really um, where we were growing up. However, that feeling of absolute silence, like that void was definitely like, in, in retrospect, the void was there, the silence was there, and the confusion was definitely there. I vividly remember being told in this kind of anecdotal way by one of my English teachers when I was in year nine, oh, we really shouldn't be reading Oscar Wilde today because we're not allowed to teach Oscar Wilde, we're not allowed to teach gay writers, but we're going to anyway. It was never explained to me why we weren't allowed to read Oscar Wilde and that what we were doing was subversive. So that was all really weird. And I kind of held that inside. And as it happened, I started teacher training in 20, oh, in 2003. So at the exact time that Section 28 came out of the Local Government Act. So for me, it was that kind of reverse thing of being like, oh, great, I can do all of this stuff. And then realising, of course, that lots of people were doing it anyway, because nobody really knew what Section 28 meant. So if you were a progressive teacher, you were already kind of shoving stuff in where you could or you were supporting queer kids. And if you were inclined to not rock the boat, then you could use it as the reason why you wouldn't support queer children or offer those narratives in your classroom. And that confusion persisted because in the same way that lots of people like my mum didn't know that Section 28 had come in, lots of people didn't know that it had been repealed. So the, the weirdest example for me was um, when I set up the Gay um, Straight Alliance in my, in my sixth form college that I was teaching at, and I'd made slides for, you know, so for tutorial that they used to use in the staff briefing. And one of my other colleagues came running up to me and 
was like they're all looking at your slide in the office and what he'd seen was the head teacher and all of senior management kind of huddled around this laptop in something like 2013 because it had the word queer in my slide are you a queer student? Do you want to help start a gay straight alliance? And they had this ancient dictionary open and they'd looked up the word queer because they couldn't work out whether it was offensive or not, which seemed particularly absurd to me at the time because I was also doing kind of queer theory at a part-time MA. So there was this kind of total lack of knowledge, which fed into things like people's teacher training. You just don't encourage queer friendly education you just don't talk about it and that's led us to a point now where we have so many members of staff who will just skip over that slide they won't want to say the word queer they won't want to engage in that discussion I think that ultimately section 28 for so many people has meant a de-skilling of teachers in all, and, and other local authority professionals who have just not got the skills to be able to look after the kids that we have in our care because we don't know how to talk to them. I wanted to ask a little bit about what kind of activism or resistance took place both around the legislation and debate about Section 28 in Parliament and, you know, subsequently, whether there were organised efforts to resist or counter the impact of Section 28. Yeah, I, I really love Shazmir hearing your your stories of really relishing this idea of we're doing something we shouldn't be doing. And when I did my oral history interviews with teachers from inner London, I, I really picked up that sense of, oh, well, we're in a London, we do things differently. One of the teachers was saying to me, I got the sense that we were going to do things our own way because that was a Tory law and we were, we were going to carry on doing things the way that we always had been. Some of these schools were very, they prided themselves on being quite democratically run in the way that they worked and they wanted to have an open forum. What came out of this huge meeting of all the teachers when Section 28 was implemented was we're not going to change anything that we do because we don't believe that we're doing anything wrong. We are actually challenging those aspects, for example, bullying, which prevent our students from progressing, from reaching their potential. So we are going to carry on. And what's also quite interesting, I think, that there was a lot within those schools where people were challenging homophobia, at that time, regardless of Section 28, they also had progressive policies on sexism and racism, and they were doing anti-racist education. And they were quite proud that this was their inner London identity, and this is what they were doing, and this is what they were going to carry on doing. Yeah, 100%. Like, I think those were exactly the kinds of schools that I taught in. So this year has been a bit of a a culture shock for me because I've moved to Cardiff and I'm now teaching in a Catholic school for the first time. But I was really just reared in these sixth form colleges where they, they behaved as if Ilya still existed and um, that that was what was happening. And I kind of loved it. Like I was obsessed with being like an 80s feminist. You know, I used to volunteer at youth groups and um, hung out at the Women's Centre and all the rest of it and was just delighted that my colleagues were kind of very out, gay people or um, the straight teachers all prided themselves on having campaigned against Section 28. What I'm finding particularly heartbreaking about what you've just said and described in terms of that meeting 
is that in that particular school that I was at, I'm sure that we had almost the identical meeting when Prevent was introduced, where we all just sat, like the whole staff was brought in and we talked about it. And there was a couple of people who said, but aren't British values good? And everyone else was like, are you mad? We're not changing anything that we're doing. We pride ourselves on this. And I think it's not been that long since that happened, but the culture change in education and the way that other things have happened in education, like burnout and changes in the curriculum and stuff has have really pushed the ability to stick your head over the parapet and say, well, I'm not doing that. We do this. We, we look after the kids. We know what's best. That's gone. Those big group school meetings where you sit down and you talk about what the government want you to do. And then you say, oh, but they're Tories. We're not doing that. That's, that's absolutely gone. Yeah. So in terms of the kinds of activism that was happening around Section 28. In 1988, on the eve of Section 28 coming in, these lesbian Avengers break into the six o'clock news studios. And um, although they don't make it onto the camera, you can hear them shouting in the background, Section 28, don't bring in Section 28. That sort of rabble-rousing lesbian energy that I think is just so deeply inspiring. There's that, there are the lesbians who abseiled into the Houses of Parliament in protest against Section 28. And I believe that that was also to kind of coincide with the anniversary of women getting the vote in the first place. And, you know, so you have these kinds of amazing moments of kind of organised activism. And actually a really lovely place to look at some of those protests and the footage is in a new film that's coming out called Rebel Dykes. And you know, you look at those and what I see in those marches is exactly the kind of energy that kind of my generation and my peers and people younger than me were bringing to Yarlswood demonstrations and so on. That that legacy of kind of feminist energy that starts with something like Green and Common then takes itself to Section 28 and then carries itself onto something else now. I think both those types of activism that we're talking about are really, really important those protests, so huge protests, there's like 25,000 people on a march in the centre of Manchester, and these aren't widely covered in no. the media. So our knowledge of it would be limited unless one was part of those subcultures. But I, I just wanted to say that I, I, I do think that it's, it's the everyday actions as well. Specifically, I do think it's important to mark those individual not glamorous, purposeful actions which were going on inside of schools. And I think now, for example, when we talk about, the, the, you know, there's been a lot of stuff about the black curriculum and Black Lives Matter recently, where people have been saying, oh, well, there's none of this education going on in school. This has never happened. Actually, as a history teacher of nearly 20 years, I would say those things have happened. And what yeah. you see written on the national curriculum or what you saw written in the letter of the law of section 28 is not a good indication of the practice of what teachers were actually doing at the time and what people were actually experiencing at the time. So it, for me, it's really important that those acts of resistance are not forgotten and marginalized because those Absolutely. things are there and have always been there. And yeah. I think there's something there about how we connect up the kind of wider social cultural conversation that's happening in the newspapers, in protests, kind of outside of school, to the things that are happening in schools. And 
a kind of also a wider question around how far kind of government efforts to control school curricula and, and kind of police what happens in schools have an impact. And there are brilliant examples of teachers everywhere innovating and creating their own version of the national curriculum. But there's also kind of the tone that's set. And I'm thinking now about some of the recent discussion that's happened around the government refusing to support more anti-racist education in schools and statements made by ministers about restricting discussion of anti-capitalism and white privilege. And obviously that all happens in the, the context of the Islamophobic prevent strategy. So I was wondering if you could kind of reflect on some of the resonances of what we've been talking about with Section 28 in terms of those other types of curriculum restrictions that are happening today. The thing that's different really with prevent is that I think the government have worked out that teachers will just do their own thing unless you make it a duty. For me I'm I'm finding prevent quite an interesting thing to grapple with. I left teaching briefly as you as you said when you introduced me and when I left teaching in 2015 the NUT was still in place and it was boycotting prevent and so you were able to talk about what was going on in the classroom and and tell the kids that look we're not doing this if they asked about it and I taught in in a school that had a majority of Muslim students and I'm you know a Muslim teacher so that seemed quite clear to me right we're just not going to do it we're not going to do it because the wording was so specifically aimed at Muslims so the prevent duty is part of the government's counter-terrorism strategy and the way in which it impacts on schools is that schools and local authorities and um, social workers anyone who comes into contact with young people for example have a duty to report their their concerns about extremism like if a, if a student seems to be becoming involved in extremism you're supposed to report it not in the normal child protection way but through um it gets reported but flagged up and then it's supposed to go through this local authority panel called the channel panel which is part of the counter-terrorism strategy that's <laughs> very difficult to say in a serious voice the channel panel but it is a it is a terrible thing like only recently we've had like during lockdown we've had the example of the child who was talking about his dad and some guns and was reported through to channel and it turned out that his dad had been playing a video game but because he was a Muslim child you know he gets dragged off into this kind of insane level of kind of intrusion into his family life there's examples of children who um there's a 14 there was a 14 year old not that long ago who used um the term eco-terrorism in a class discussion and because he was a muslim student he was hauled up in front of channel and asked if he was a member of isis at the same time because the government have now made it part of our duty it's part of our jobs it's part of the obligation of schools and therefore governors and head teachers to make sure that prevent is being enacted and and upheld in their schools which means that even though it doesn't directly apply to teachers it obviously does because the governors have to make sure that we are upholding British values, that we are reporting young people if we think that they're at risk of becoming terrorists. We can't can't refuse it. 
anymore. So I came back to teaching in 2017. And in the two years I'd been away, the unions had merged. Um, and now we are the NEU. And I'm, I'm not really sure what happened because all of a sudden I was refusing to do prevent training. And my line manager had to sit me down and say, yeah, we're not doing that anymore. You have to do it. We all have to do it. You have to teach the kids about prevent. You have to do the tutorial on British values. So there's this thing where sort of like in 2003, Section 28 is no longer the law. It gets taken out of the Local Authority Act. And then by 2005, we've got civil partnerships coming in and gay people become more acceptable. We become, you know, so you can get married. So it's not pretended relationship anymore because the government has said your relationship is real. But in 2005, we've also got changes to the terrorism bill. They're extending the reach of the government in terms of its counter-terrorism strategy. And that is all aimed at Muslims. Um, and by 2007, we've got Prevent coming in. There are lots of ways in which it does exactly the same thing. It shuts down discussion. It stops people from feeling like they can express who they are or be who they are in the classroom. And what's been particularly interesting is that because it's not been countered strongly enough, and now we've ended up in a situation where one week my kids are all out on the, the climate strikes and the next week going on the climate strikes puts them at risk of being reported under prevent because being an environmentalist is now coming under sort of a catch-all term of terrorist in this country that you can't be anti-capitalist you can't talk about being an anti-capitalist you can't be an environmentalist extinction rebellion is now on the hit list in order to avoid claims of being islamophobic our government seemed to have decided that instead of making prevent less about Muslims they've just added a lot of other people in there and now we're all in deep trouble because at this moment there is a huge amount of policing going on in schools and it's happening at the same time as our curriculums are getting narrower and narrower. I mean I do think that there is hope every half human half decent teacher or educator has this experience of connecting with your students and it's that individual connection that you have where you feel you can make a difference but there is also the feeling and we we live in very individualistic times we've been moving more and more towards very very individualistic times and you know schools aren't part of a local authority schools are their own individual units and then schools got broken off and they were academies and then every everybody was separated off and it's broken down some of this sense of community but I do actually think in the in in the power of the collective that teachers do actually have some power and some voice it's it's in the long slog work of building the collective power Austin Allen on his own wonderful amazing man he didn't do anything outrageous he was asked by a student if he was gay and he said he was off you go, section 28, bye, you can't work anymore. Union and the staff within the school say, hang on a minute. And within that collective power, you have more than if you just have an individual taking an individual stand. And I think that's where we can make a difference. You know what, if you don't have a confident management team, 
they are going to take the path of least resistance. And they will, for example, I, I work near, there's a couple of schools near me, they've got Black Lives Matters posters up on the outside of the school. And there are other schools where they would not publish a statement explaining why Black History Month was important within the same area of London. And it all comes down to confidence, doesn't it? It's the confidence of having that, actually, we can interpret this and we're not going to get prosecuted for doing this because it means this and not this. I totally agree with you. I think the it's about training as well, isn't it? So it's about having a confident management team, but it's also about not being overconfident. I think, for example, a really good example of like well-meaning overconfidence might be the No Outsiders project. So this happened in about in 2018, I think, in Birmingham, in a very diverse and kind of predominantly Muslim area, citizenship for children. And it causes this huge drama. Like there's definitely some resistance from the Christian right, which doesn't get documented as much as the much more kind of tabloid friendly women in hijabs outside the school who are complaining about the fact that their children are being taught about gay rights and that they're too young to know what gay is because they're in primary schools. The thing about No Outsiders is a well-meaning project by a nice white gay teacher who um, taught in a very Muslim, very working class school in a community in Birmingham who in 2018 had already been subject to a lot of scrutiny under Prevent. So they're already an embattled community who were being kind of surveyed by the government. And then suddenly you've got this nice white man who comes in and he starts telling the kids that we need to respect gay rights and as a lesbian I'd be like yeah right on mister and as a Muslim I'm like oh what's going on here and then what I later found out which was even more problematic and actually we wrote a letter to the independent it was from a group of of, of Muslim um teachers it was led by the um inclusive mosque initiative and, and a few other groups and the letter was really flagging up the idea that we have to be really careful. There are schools, there are examples of head teachers who had used the fact that they were going to be doing like LGBT History Month and specifically using No Outsiders. They had used that in their PowerPoint presentations to their board to say, look, this is how we're going to teach British values. So actually, we've got this situation now where kind of the rights of gay white men and the kind of resources that they create because they're confident because they know that they have a, you know that section 28 did them wrong they just don't they, they're making resources that don't include other people that are now being used as part of a government strategy against another minority group and I think that that is really where our problem is going to be you know we're now in a position where you've got the the heroes of the of the gay rights movement of the 80s silencing other people. You've got Peter Tatchell thinking that he can speak on behalf of gay Muslims and save us. We've got Linda Bellos, who came up earlier on, who is now an incredibly vocal trans-exclusionary radical feminist. You know, she has written extensively on her blog about how trans people are wrong, essentially. I think we move in quite difficult times because we're all so individualistic that you can't move for someone saying, oh, if you don't agree with me, you're silencing me. 
So then how do you deal with prevent when somebody else wants to deal with something else? I think the, um, the prevent strategy I, I've found quite interesting. The way it's been used in some um, educational institutions has just been to say homosexuality is a British value versus Islam, which is not a British value. And it's that kind of, I think Joseph Massad has written a lot about the homonormativity and this argument that there's there's a colonial version of what is uh, an appropriate homosexual identity and Islam is the polar opposite of that. So setting up this very idea, as I said, so quite often it's like, I don't know, garlic to a vampire, I will hold up homosexuality and that will frighten away Muslims, forget the fact. (laughs) I mean, even speaking to my very conservative mother about the No Outsiders project in Birmingham and Prevent, and she's she's remarking on well how about the gay muslim children who who taught them to be gay then if it was indoctrination that was happening in well done your mum yeah absolutely i mean i mean this this is the thing isn't it that this bipolar existence is not reality living proof nasmia seda yeah. <laughs> so we are having this discussion but the stereotyping doesn't work with any community and it just leads no. further resentment and fo- further polarization really and fragmentation of communities so we've been talking here about quite a few examples of pretty bad practice when it comes to <laughs> integrating all sorts of different students lives And so I was hoping that we could try and end on a more hopeful note and thinking about some of the really important work that's being done by educators. Um, And Nazmir, I know that you've just developed a really exciting new LGBT poetry resource for secondary school teachers. Ah, yeah. Well, um, yeah. So I used to work at the Poetry Society briefly. So they asked me to make a resource for teachers. I was thinking about what would be what would be a good thing, what would be a useful thing. And really I thought about the legacy of section 28 and the fact that there's that void, that actually what people want is is a kind of list of writers to read or a list of kind of suitable things that you could do in your classroom. And so I ended up making this fairly wide ranging resource that just points you in the direction of, I think maybe about 60 queer poets that you could teach in the classroom are are kind of embedded in there. A lot of them are people that I've taught myself. So, you know, there are some, there's also some suggestions of how to queer what we're already teaching. On the current A-level literature specification, you can, you have to, you have to teach at least one text that was written during the lifetime of the student. So it has to be new, like they're forcing you to do something British and new. And so I ended up teaching Surge by Jay Bernard, who, as it happened, had actually been to that school. So it was kind of perfect, just dragged Jay back into their old classroom. But it meant that, you know, it, it, it meant being able to teach about the New Cross Fire. It meant being able to teach about Grenfell and about Black history. But through the voice of, um, of a queer poet who writes about gender, who writes about all kinds of, you know, has like some poems about pride and stuff in there as well. And it was that, it was just such a, it's such a, if you're a London teacher, please try and teach it because it gives all the students a sense of place and belonging and a way of talking about traumatic things that have happened in our recent history 
as well as giving the kids who are queer or questioning or um, trans, it gives them a way of feeling part of something of a bigger story rather than being singled out and on the side. Brilliant. Seda, did you have some examples in mind? I have worked in schools which um, obviously we're quite lucky we're in London. Students have gone on pride marches. We've had LGBT working groups, gay straight alliances within schools and just really giving students a voice to be able to organise that for themselves. And just thinking how unimaginable that would have been as something in 1988 to do under section 28 where students will turn up and they'll they'll say to teachers who they feel they can trust we'd like to organize this and for them that to be able to happen just to think the huge seismic shift which has taken place within that lifetime so from within the time that I was at secondary school to my time as a teacher I think I think that's pretty amazing in itself And then just looking at the history curriculum, there has been a lot of really good work done in recent years with the Historical Association in particular, looking at the idea of having the best practice within school history as being not teaching diverse histories as an add-on, as the other, not just having something which is, we'll do this for a month, You've got your months now, you can have your time there where you'll have three or four lessons or we'll have an assembly on it because this is the only time in the whole of the curriculum, in the whole of your experience where we're going to address this. Moving to a point where actually these histories are integrated. These histories are integrated because these are everybody's histories. And just being at a point where it's natural to say this belongs to everybody it's not just important to this group or to this group it's important because this is history queer history is part of that history and it has a place within that and it has equal value with that so um i do think that there has been a shift well, it just remains to, to me to thank you both, Seder and Nasbia, for your brilliant contributions today and also for being inspiring examples of educators today with the resources that you're creating and the energy that I'm sure that you're bringing into the classroom for your students. So thank you. Many thanks to Seda Ali and Nasmia Jamal for taking part in the podcast. You can find links to some of the resources mentioned in the discussion on the episode page for this podcast. The other episodes in this series on queer performance, AIDS and its legacy, and queer public history and archives are all available now wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, we'd love it if you'd leave us a review. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.